Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? That dog does not want to be petted. <laughs> well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but prediabetes does. Take the one-minute test today at doihadprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. You know, in the market, people are always looking for an edge. They're always looking for a new way to make money, to get some up on the uh, on the other guy. And there are always people that are looking to create products that will help them get that edge and sell that for a profit for themselves, of course. The latest one that has hit the market, if it actually ever does really hit the market, uh, it, it is questionable. It might be just a step too far for most people, except for maybe the most extreme momentum traders. We're going to talk about this today because it's really it's pretty fascinating. We are joined by intelligent investor columnist Jason Zweig. Mr. Zweig, how are you doing? Hey, Paul. Good, Good to see you. And Money Beat reporter Chris Dietrich. Chris, how are you? Really well. Thanks, Paul. So we have uh, two perspectives on, on, on this uh, fund. Force Shares Daily, four times ex-U.S. market futures is the name of it, if it ever actually gets to the market, right, Chris? Because this one has been, uh, it's been on the SEC's desk back and forth. Right. It's, it's definitely a mouthful of a name. But maybe as a place to start, let's go back to earlier this month. The uh, SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, approved the listing of this fund, and that was that was a bit of a surprise to people that watch this space. The SEC, under Mary Jo White, had been pretty critical um, and a little bit hesitant to approve new sort of products, and this is and this is a, a supercharged one that would deliver four times the move of the S and P. So if mm-hmm. the S and P five hundred went up one percent, this would go up four percent. Um, now, and is the reverse and, also and true? The, right, the reverse yeah. is also true. So, if the S and P, uh, you know, the foil fund in these would go if it went down four percent, right? So, these triple levered and double levered ETFs have been around for a long time, right. but this would really mark kind of a, a, a turnaround and maybe open the gate um, for four, five, six. Um, our little scoop this wow. week is um, was that actually, in fact, it was a bit of a, a window into the sausage making within the SEC. Uh, in fact, the commissioners will reappraise their deci- the decision to whether or not to approve this, and part of that has to do with the fact that um, some internal um, internally it was approved by folks that weren't politically appointed. The politically the politically appoint- appointed commissioners want to make this decision on their own, and that's kind of, it's it's fairly unusual to happen. Now. Is this with the creation of this uh, ETF? Is that coming because of the, the just sheer lack of volatility we've seen this year? I mean, what is it? Five moves total of one percent, either up or down, um, since the election. Yeah, I mean, the market has been extraordinarily smooth uh, so far this year. Uh, until Wednesday. Yeah, until yeah. Wednesday when it what suddenly wasn't. And then it suddenly back to... <laughs> yeah, now it, now today on Friday it's looking pretty smooth again, and it did yesterday as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, funds like these um, uh, feed off volatility. And, you know, as Chris was mentioning, you get... I mean, there's two of them, right? So one is long, the other is short. So... If the market is up 1%, then the long fund goes up 4 and the short fund goes down 4 and vice versa. If the market is down, the long fund goes down 4% and the short fund goes up 4%. So 
on a daily basis, that's the result you're going to get. The, the, one of the critical issues with these leveraged ETFs is that over longer periods of time, you don't get four times the market return, especially in periods of high volatility. You could get a lot more. You could get a lot less. And for that matter, e- with funds like these, even in a flat market, you could lose money in both varieties over a longer period. And I thought it was really interesting, Jason. I mean, this was your column today was about this fund, and, and you crunched the numbers and you talked to a few experts. And some of the potential losses that you came up with you know, are pretty astounding. And we're not talking about holding on to this thing for 10 years. You're talking about six months or a year yeah. if you're in this fund. Some of the numbers you came up with are pretty astounding. Yeah, I mean, in... Assuming normal levels of fluctuation in the market and you know kind of moderate uh, returns on stocks, you could easily lose half your money or more in either of these funds over right. a period of a year or so. That's not that unusual. I mean, the same thing can happen to you in in a double or triple levered fund. What the the unusual situation here is that the disclosures in the preliminary prospectus that's on file with the SEC, don't really spell those potential losses out mm-hmm. very clearly for people. I mean, the, the wording in the prospectus says you could lose some or all of your investment, but the illustrations, the graphic presentations, uh, don't really paint the extreme outcomes that you could get with this. And I think that's that's the central issue from and my point of view. didn't you try to talk to the, the folks that are creating this product to ask them on that? But it, how, how yeah, I mean, to look, to to their credit, I mean, they have, a, they have a securities filing and registration with regulators. So I think it's reasonable for their lawyers to say, you don't want to be talking uh, right, on the record sure. with the Wall Street Journal. I think if they could if they could talk about it, I think they would say, you know, we're in favor of innovation and providing new ways for investors to take advantage of short-term moves in the marketplace. Maybe not investors, but traders. Um, but I still think the disclosures could have been more um, – Clear and transparent. Can we um, can we sort of take a step back and talk about why? And you asked this question actually in your question in your in your column today. Why the returns of so-called you know leverage ETFs? Why they deviate so sharply over longer periods? Yeah, I'll, I'll take that first. Maybe Chris wants to jump in as well. I I think the simplest way to think about it, Steve, is that you know if you lose fifty percent of your money. A 50% gain does not get you back to break even. You have to double your money to get back to break even. And since these funds magnify the daily returns in the market by a factor of four, once you fall behind, it becomes increasingly hard over time for you to get back to matching the return of the market. On the other hand, if the market goes does really well and the volatility plays in your favor you could and there are scenarios under which you could end up outperforming but it's the downside volatility you really have to worry about cuz that's what drives the long-term return in these kinds of funds away from what the market is doing and i think it's worth noting even this week existing products so yesterday brazil oh, markets yes. were rattled <laughs> right, um, right. by the you know the other uh, political uh, situation down there but there are existing 
uh, triple leveraged Brazil stock market exchange traded funds. Yep. So yesterday, the, the ordinary unlevered uh, exchange traded fund fell 16%. Wow. The triple leveraged um, exchange traded fund yet just yesterday in one day fell 48%. Yep. And that's exactly oh, the example God. of, Jason, what you're talking about with this sort of compounding. Mm -hmm. It's going to be even if even if the brazilian stock market eventually returns if you owned this fund yesterday it's virtually impossible for you to make your money back in any sort of a reasonable amount of time yeah do, do we have any sense of how much money goes into these levered funds and and who look obviously these are not appropriate for your average retail investor but i mean who are these but, appropriate right, for who, who are they? is who is this really being marketed to and, and who mm -hmm. is the actual sort of you know target demo for this and, kind and of thing. Other, but I also, you say it's not for the retail investor, but is that really, I mean, like, <laughs> it might not be for them, but how much are retail investors getting into this? How much of a... Well, yeah, I mean, that's yeah. my question, you yeah. know, how much money is going in and who's really buying these? Yeah, I mean, look, with ETFs, it's hard to say because, um, you know, the custodians and the fund companies don't really usually know who the in investor mm -hmm. is, but... I mean, the numbers are big. There's over $40 billion total, cl actually closer to 50, in double and triple levered ETFs. Um, so, I mean, that's a substantial amount of assets. I think a lot of that is hedge funds and other institutions that mm -hmm. are using them to hedge short-term moves in the market. But there's no doubt in my mind that a lot of individual investors own them. I know for a fact a lot of individual investors own them because I've heard from them. I've interviewed some mm -hmm. of them. And, I mean, Chris is nodding. He's probably had the same experience. I spoke with um, – Matt Hogan, who's a, a pretty well-known expert on ETFs, and, and he said he was giving a talk at a retail investing conference a couple weeks ago, and he asked for a show of hands in a room that had a 1,000 individual investors in it, how many of you have ever owned an, uh, a levered ETF? And he said about half the people put their hands up. Wow. And we had that story earlier this year about people using, I, I think it was an oil ETF, to, you know, mom and pop investors to, to sort of day trade, right, Chris? Yeah, I mean, listen, the way that the, if you dig in, yes, you can you can understand how they operate, but just simply the name of something that's a triple X S&P 500 fund, I think for people that don't, you know, take hours to dig through a prospectus to figure out how something works, it's, it's hard to understand why it's going to do what it does. Um, but to Jason's point, there are studies I've seen from some of the banks that will show that the average holding period for some of these is as short as a day. Um, some of the some of the fun, some of the other fund companies that offer these will I mean they're marketed for day traders. They're essentially catnip for day traders. But there's no doubt hmm. that there are folks that use them in a way that expect they expect over a period of months that it's going to do something that it absolutely will not. Yeah, and uh, one last point on all of this, which is that over the past few years there have been numerous lawsuits against stockbrokers and other financial advisors who put their clients into leveraged ETFs without, A, explaining to the clients that the long-term returns might differ from the, sh mm -hmm. the short-term effect of the leverage, and two, without clear evidence that the financial advisors themselves may have properly understood these products. So um, they are for short-term traders only, they're for sophisticated traders only, and um, 
the term investor doesn't belong in the same sentence with the right just real quick what do you think now that the sec is you know reviewing its initial approval what do you think the chances of it getting approved now are i think it's hard to say but one thing that's interesting is i think the amount of media coverage about the approval uh, earlier this month um well, you know, make, put, really puts this in the spotlight. And now the fact that it's being reappraised opens it up for more comment letters. So I think it, there'll be a lot of scrutiny, I think, on the SEC for the decision. And um, they're, they're putting their stamp on on, on, a, on an entirely new product. So it's hard to handicap, I would say, but I think it's going to be carefully considered. Um, and it's clear that the careful consideration uh, didn't have much to do with the sort of initial preliminary approval. Okay. All right. Uh, when we come back, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Amazon recently celebrated its 20th anniversary as a publicly traded company. Jason Zweig will be here to regale us with some astounding Amazon analysis. Stay tuned. Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? That dog does not want to be petted. <laughs> Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but prediabetes does. Take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. The Future of Everything podcast from the Wall Street Journal. What's the future of space and the law? Companies like Elon Musk's SpaceX. High-tech guns. This is about choice in types of gun offered for sale. Brain implants. They didn't know how effective this was going to be. Urban farming. But what about a building that's 30 stories tall? And the mass production of meat. Now these cells came from a duck. The Future of Everything podcast from the Wall Street Journal. Welcome back to Money Beat. We're in the studio today with intelligent investor, columnist Jason Zweig, and Money Beat reporter Chris Dietrich. And so, you know, we, look, we, we got a fair amount of attention this week about Amazon's 20th anniversary, the IPO, how well it's done. Uh, Jason, you wrote a column about it, and it's done pretty well, hasn't it? Uh, if you consider 49,000% <laughs> to be pretty good, yeah, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, it's not so bad. Now, and that's not annualized. That's total, right? Yeah, that's cumulative. Yeah. And annualized, it's about a 36% return over 20 years, which wow. – which uh, is, you know, that's as we say, that ain't chicken feed. But I mean, I, I guess the question is, you know, finding Amazons is easy, right? You know, the next Amazon, those investment opportunities are all right. That's over the average, place. right? Every <laughs> yeah. stock, every stock over twenty years does that, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I wanted to do was to highlight some research by um, uh, Professor Hank Bessenbinder from Arizona State, who's written an, an amazing research paper recently that got some attention, but maybe not enough. And um, what he found, he looked at basically all 26,000 companies that were public at any point between 1926 and 2015. And he said, how many of these outperformed cash? Mm. And what he found is that 4% of all the companies that ever existed over the past 90 years provided all the gains. And the other 96% of the companies had no return, basically, wow. in excess of cash. And half of all the companies that have existed over that period uh, uh, hadn't uh, lost money for investors. Wow. Okay, and, so... And, and, and <laughs> the 30 stocks that basically over that period accounted for a third of the wealth accumulated in the U.S. stock market? Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's kind of an amazing... 
the more you think about it, the more amazing it becomes. And, I mean, he mentioned to me when we spoke that when he first realized what he had found, he kind of couldn't believe it. And he, like, checked his math a million times and spoke to everybody he could find. And there doesn't appear to be a problem with his data, uh, <laughs> which it's a, it's just a phenomenal fact that almost all the total gains come from almost none of the stocks. And it really puts in perspective, I think we've spilled a lot of ink on our team about the concentration of a few big tech stocks mm-hmm. driving the S&P 500 you know, in recent years. And you know, clearly this research shows that that is not an unusual phenomenon. It's really just a handful of stocks yeah. that are in any given year and for many decades really what provide all, almost all of the gain. Over yeah, I mean one of the it was five stocks um, accounted for ten percent of the total dollar wealth created in the stock market um, since from nineteen twenty six to two thousand fifteen. And those five stocks are Exxon Mobil, Apple, General Electric, Microsoft, and IBM. Wow. Yeah, and you know let's let's emphasize, Steve, that's five stocks providing a tenth of all the cumulative wealth created. For almost a century. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Now, and and what I what I I'm reading this, and we've spilt a lot of ink about how <laughs> the stock picker is dead, and all this, and this points out is sort of kind of hard to be a good stock picker, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, I think there's I think there's two fascinating lessons in this. One is that that. The, the huge winners in the, the home run stocks in the stock market are incredibly rare. I mean, yeah. you're basically – I mean, if 4 percent of the stocks are driving all the gains, then, you know, the odds are 25 to 1 against you just going mm-hmm. out of the gate before you pay any expenses. But the flip side of that is if you find the winning stock – you don't have to do anything else. Right. So, I mean, if if you did buy Amazon in 1997 and hold it all the way through, first of all, I'd like to meet you. Um, and secondly, if you did... And your name isn't Jeff Bezos. Yeah, that's right. right. Um, or you weren't an employee. Right, right. Uh, you know, the thing is, if you did that, you're done. You don't have to do anything yeah. else. So what is the real takeaway then for investors, for average investors? I mean, is it don't bother, bother, look for the 4%? How do you find the 4%? Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you, as an investor, how do you, how do you then use this information? Yeah, well, I think, I think the lessons are, there's sort of two lessons, Paul. I mean, one is for, I think for professional investors, they have to be realistic in what they tell themselves and how they market themselves to the public about the odds of, you know, really identifying tomorrow's super stocks, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the odds are pretty long. For individual investors, I think it's an entirely different message. I mean, I think the best advice for people is if you're willing to try to pick stocks at all, what you should do is you should put almost all your money, 95, 99% of your money in an index fund and then with that tiny little bit of money left over, if you do have the courage to pick individual stocks, pick one or no more than a handful at most that you feel you understand and put a little bit of money in there and keep it there. Yeah. 
And keeping it there isn't easy, right? Even in the case of Amazon, which what, during the tech bubble, had you even bought it in the IPO in 97, it had fallen more than 90% at one point, right? right. So yeah. it's, not, it's not as though it's an easy, yeah. even, though, even for a stock that was up more than 30% annualized, there were some there were some pretty wild downrides that would be difficult to hold on to, even if you had yeah. high conviction in the I, stock. I think that's a that's an a, an amazing point, Chris. You know, at from from peak to trough in over the course of 1999 to 2001, Amazon was down 95 percent. So you know, if you wow. I mean, think about that. If you invested $10,000, you have $500 at the bottom. I mean, and the thought that anybody would say, oh, oh, it's coming back. Yeah. I mean, it's a little far-fetched. But if anybody can do that, it's probably an individual investor rather than a professional portfolio manager because nobody can fire the individual investor. I mean, and and that really, you know, you just look at it. Apple on there, too. Yeah. Nineteen ninety, like ninety-seven, it was close to bankruptcy. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, you know, you had to have got bailed of, out by Microsoft of all people. Yeah, you That's had to right. have a lot of, you know, yeah. you know, yeah. And in Apple's case, back. that happened more than once. Yeah, let's not, right. Let's not. And forget. I remember Apple's stock, if I recall correctly, in you know, oh one, oh two, something or other. It was like an eleven dollars stock or something. Yeah. I mean, it was it was really depressed. Yeah. So it's yeah. I mean, this is you know. You talk about it now, especially look. We're at the we're at a market top too. I mean, everything looks brilliant right now. That's so. right. But the, the point is, everything is not so brilliant. And that's I mean, that's the hardest thing about investing is taking like the sort of human emotion out of that yeah. and and not being your worst enemy. <laughs> yeah. All right, Jason Zweig, Chris Dietrich, gentlemen, thank you very much for coming on today. Thanks. And everybody, thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. It's like having a crystal ball inside your earbuds. The Future of Everything Podcasts from The Wall Street Journal. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play Music. The Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously.